You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. We're going to be in John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. (laughs) He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So for the season of Easter tide, we are exploring the final portions of John's gospel. And believe it or not, the passage that we're focusing on today tells us quite a bit about what it means to be the church today, how the church is to exist in the world in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there is a tradition uh, from early Christianity that has sort of carried over to this day in some uh, more historic church buildings, like the very one that you are seated in right now. And the tradition is this, that the central portion of a church where the people congregate is often called the nave. Hey, I'll meet you in the nave. We call it the sanctuary, but historically it was called the nave. And this word nave or navis, or maybe you'll recognize another word, navy, means boat, on board. When Jesus calls his first disciples saying, follow me, the interesting thing is that they were in a boat. When Jesus reveals his power over nature and he calms the storm, they're in a boat. When Jesus desired to communicate to a large group of people he got in a boat. When Jesus calls Peter out onto the waters to walk by faith, they're in a boat. 
And here in John 21, when Jesus reveals himself to his disciples after being raised from death, they're fishing in a boat. This is a timeless picture of the church. We are together in a boat. Navigating the unpredictable and chaotic seas of life. Like the ark, we who are in Christ are safe above the waters of judgment. And now we are launched out on mission to urge other people to come on board. If you are here today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, or even if you're just simply exploring the things of the Christian faith, it is because in some way you are like these earliest disciples who responded to Peter's invitation and said, I guess I'll come along. I'm, I'm in. And this is the simple invitation and the simple response that has repeated itself for the last 2,000 years all the way up to us this morning here. Someone said, hey, you want to come? And we're like, uh, I guess. Okay. As this famous story unfolds, there are a few movements that I want us to focus on. The first is this, carrying on together. Look with me again in verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Now, the Sea of Tiberias is another name, when we see this earlier in John, I believe it's in John chapter 6, the Sea of Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And this was the very place that Jesus told his disciples that he would meet them after he was raised. This is the rendezvous point. And this is extremely important to grasp, and here, here's why it's important. Because I have heard various teachings about this passage over the years that say this right here is the story of Peter giving up on following Jesus. This is Peter sort of hopelessly returning to his old life, his old job. This is the old Peter falling away and resisting his destiny in Jesus. That's sensational. <laughs> but there's no reason to believe anything other than that they went to where Jesus told them to meet. Jesus said, go to the Sea of Galilee, and they're there. And there's nothing about his old job fishing, specifically, that is dishonoring to Jesus and the call that is upon his life. It were, if it were so, Jesus would not have helped him catch 153 fish. And did you catch this? Jesus is already barbecuing fish, so it seems that Jesus was fishing himself that morning. There's nothing about this that is like dishonoring to Jesus. Yes, Jesus told Peter, now you are a fisher of men. Yes, Jesus has called him to be an apostle. But this does not mean that going fishing for fish is like spiritually digressing as if he's moving backwards in life. Now, where do we get that kind of idea? Where does that idea come from? There's a myth that exists in Christianity um, that I want to actively resist. And the myth is this. The myth is that the ultimate goal for a believer is to leave normal work and to get into spiritual work. 
to become a pastor or to join a church staff or to get into the ministry. Are you in the ministry? Throughout the centuries, there have been different ways that Christians have sort of mistakenly divided people into two categories. There are those of us who do the sacred work. See me up here? And then there's the rest of you who do the normal secular work, you know, just carrying on with business. Sacred work, secular work. Except the Bible tells us this in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You're doing the Lord's work, man. This is what makes work uh, sacred. Sacred work is when you put your heart into something and it's done in order to honor Jesus and not man. No matter how normal the work may be. Brother Lawrence, who is known for his uh, book, The Practice of the Presence of God, hundreds of years uh, ago, he, he talked about uh, experiencing the Lord while he was peeling potatoes in the kitchen that he worked at. Like you thought your job was bad. He peeled potatoes for a living. And yet he writes about this experience of experiencing God there. And what he said was phenomenal. He said, I experience God's presence on my feet at work just as much as I do when I'm kneeling at the altar in worship. God is just as present with me in the kitchen as he is in the nave. Good. The goal is not to pluck Christians out of their jobs to then become ministers. Ephesians 4 says that all Christians are already called and already gifted as ministers. You are already, if you're a believer, you're already a minister. The the goal is to then equip men and women to faithfully minister where you are in your job, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your school, to be a witness for Jesus where the people are. The main thing that we're to gather from this is not that Peter is going backwards, it's that Peter and the other disciples are carrying on together, despite their despair, despite their confusion, despite these feelings of like, what the heck just happened, despite not knowing what the future is going to look like, they are persevering. And they've gone to the place, this is important, where Jesus said he would meet them. Like many of us need to be encouraged today, they kept showing up. I'm not seeing you yet, Jesus, but I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to meet you where you said you would meet me. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other with expectancy and hope. But there's a dilemma here. Because as we see, they're carrying on together. There is a significant problem, and this is our second movement I want you to pay attention to. The second movement is that they're catching nothing. Verse 3, they went out and got in the boat, but that night they what? Caught nothing. Now, Peter and some of the other disciples were fishermen by trade. This was the family business. It was in their bones. It was in their DNA. And they had the kind of skill that was like associated with muscle memory and instinct. They knew what they were doing. And so they set out 
set out fishing uh, at night because the best fishing happens in the earliest hours right before the sunrise. This is when the, the fish are extremely active. And one of the typical methods of fishing at this time was to work together, this is why there's so many disciples, to work together in two different boats with what is called a compound net that would encircle and sort of trap the fish. So there was a net that would be dropped with sinkers on one side and floats on the other to cause the net to get vertical. And then when they had trapped the fish in, a cast net would be thrown on top that would then sink and trap the fish in. It was a very involved method. They knew what they were doing very well. But despite their skill, despite their knowledge, despite their experience, despite having all the right gear, they were totally unsuccessful. It doesn't say they caught a few fish. They caught nothing. This is a very fitting illustration for so much of life, isn't it? It highlights the often frustrating nature of effort. There are so many situations in our lives where we've done the right things, We've done what we should do, we're trying our best, the conditions seem right, but the preferred outcome just doesn't happen. The writer of Ecclesiastes, which by the way, we're gonna explore the book of Ecclesiastes over the summer starting in a couple weeks, but the writer of Ecclesiastes would describe this as futility. Vanity of vanities, man, it doesn't make sense. Like these disciples, we can be in the right place at the right time, put all the right effort in, and it just doesn't turn out. Life is like that. It happens in our careers. It happens in our education. It happens with our finances. It happens with our investments. It happens in our relationships. It happens in our family planning. It happens in our parenting. Where I have often seen this at work is in the church. You know, the work of casting the net of the gospel and, and seeing people come to Christ. And there have been seasons where I'm like, God, we're trying so hard to do the right thing. We're, I believe we're clear in our teaching. We're trying to be faithful to your word. Where is the big catch? Where's the revival? We've seen you do it in the past. Why not today? A psalm that has humbled me, uh, but also has given me a lot of hope over the years, is Psalm 127, and I'm mixing metaphors here for just a second. It says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You can spin your wheels. You, you can do everything that you're supposed to do, and unless the Lord blesses it and builds it, it's in vain. We are active participants in what God is doing in this world. That's the beauty here. Jesus welcomes us into what he's doing. But we must never deceive ourselves into thinking that we have the power to control the outcomes of what we're doing. We are participants, but we are not in control. And we are believing an absolute lie if we think that when we do things the right way that God somehow owes us a specific result. Now, what we see here is actually that it's not in moments of success, but seasons of failure, seasons of setback, seasons of lack and loss, where God's people become most open to Jesus and his miraculous power. 
If they had been successful in their fishing, they never would have experienced the miracle of Jesus. They had to be reduced to nothing. To then be open to Jesus is everything. Don't resent your season of catching nothing. Jesus is positioning you for his abundance. If you're not going to amen, I'm not sure when else you will amen after something like that. Maybe that one will hit you on the car ride home. Let's look at the third movement, casting the net, verses 4 through 6. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Important note. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? I love that. Jesus knows the answer. And they say, No. He said to them, okay, then cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, everything about Jesus' instruction here does not make sense. It is now, at this point, the wrong time of day to be fishing. It is now, where they are is too shallow water to, to do this kind of fishing, The vertical net isn't even in place, and Jesus just says, now cast the cast net out there. Like the things aren't even in place, and Jesus says, just cast the net. It's completely unconventional. It shouldn't work, and yet against all the odds, contrary to their experience and what makes sense to them, they see a miracle. They pull in 153 fish which is probably, it probably has no numeric significance other than this is the amount of fish that they counted. There bit, it was interesting reading through the commentary. So many people like got caught up in the numerology. If you take the 12 tribes of, of Israel and then you multiply by the 12 disciples, but you, you divide it by three for the Trinity, but then you add 11 because, you know, Judas fell away and, you know, like, and John's like, no, no, it's just because it was 153. <laughs> The point here is that they're in their moment of lack when they've come to the end of themselves, they've come to the end of their abilities, right when they're ready to give up on their own efforts, God provides his abundance. The power of Jesus is revealed in your weakness. And the church, for the church, again, this is a picture of the church. The church's future does not rest on our skill. It doesn't rest on our experience or our knowledge or our you know ability to navigate life creatively and wisely and winsomely the future of the church rests on God's grace and provision we are staking it all on him here we are 2,000 years later with so many setbacks and losses so many times in history when this thing shouldn't have worked and here we are and here we are Now, there's something mysterious about this portion of the story because it tells us that they don't initially recognize Jesus yet. They hear his words, but they don't see him. And yet there's still this like deep impulse to obey his voice. I'm going to make an application here. This is a sign of a true follower of Jesus Christ. When your impulse to obey God's word is stronger than your need to make sense of it. 
Tim Keller put it this way, if you only obey God's word when it seems reasonable or profitable to you, then it isn't really obedience at all. We cannot expect to experience the abundant life that Jesus promises if we are only ever willing to do what seems reasonable to us. It's when we step out in faith beyond our comfort zones, beyond our limited ability to reason through life. That is when we open ourselves up to God's abundance. That's what obedience is. When it comes to our finances, Many of us often say, I know what, that God's word says to give sacrificially, to be generous to the point that it hurts, but it doesn't make sense right now. Have you seen my budget? It just doesn't add up right now, so we don't cast the net. And so then we indefinitely remain in a scarcity mindset, and we never experience abundance. When it comes to our sexuality, we say, I know God's word says that sex is a gift from God and it's to be enjoyed specifically and only in marriage between one man and one woman, but it doesn't make sense to me right now. We come up with a lot of reasons why I'm lonely or, you know, there's economic things here or the pressure of family or the pressure of the the culture that we're in. And so, so many of us go with what feels right or what the culture says right instead of what God said is right. When it comes to sharing our faith and telling people about Jesus, casting the net of the gospel, we come up with a, a number of excuses. Well, it's just not going to work. They're not going to listen to me. People don't really care anymore. That sounds so archaic, or I don't know enough about the Bible, or I'm not a strong enough Christian. I haven't been walking with Jesus long enough. Or what if they ask a hard question and I don't know the answer to it, so we don't cast the net? Cast your net is another way of saying live with daring and obedient faith. Take a risk on Jesus' word that will never fail you. It's the way that we display our trust that God's ways are higher than our ways, and it's the way that we show that he's infinitely wiser and more capable than we ever will be. Now, there's some hope here. Because we're told that even in the abundance of fish, later on we're told that the net was not torn. John does not waste, none of the, uh, all four gospel writers, none of them waste space in their gospels. Every word is intentional. That word, that statement there is intentional. And the fact that John mentions that the nets were not torn tells us that we don't have to worry about the details and the outcomes of faith and obedience. We're always thinking, well, what about this? Or what if this happens? Or what if this goes wrong? Or what about this? Come what may, nothing can break the nets of God's grace that supports us now and forever. You don't have to worry about the outcome of obedience and faith. Let Jesus cover that. Let's look finally at come to the table. The disciples whom Jesus, I'm sorry, the disciple whom Jesus loved, likely John, Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. That is strange. Commentators are like, we don't know why he put on the garment to jump in the water. It just goes to show you he was just like making a mad dash towards Jesus. For he was stripped for work. Get your mind out of the gutter. And he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. 
And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. This may be one of the most shocking pictures of Jesus that we see in all of the Gospels because this is the risen king, king who is exalted above every name that is named in heaven and on earth. This is the one to whom angels bow and declare for infinity, worthy are you to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing now and forever. This same risen Jesus is barbecuing. Brings an end to the uh, endless debate about charcoal and propane. <laughs> Serving his disciples breakfast. One commentator made a really beautiful connection here. I want you to pay attention to this. He said that the last time Peter stood over a charcoal fire, he denied Jesus. And now Jesus invites him to stand over another charcoal fire in order to be received. He's showing him through this action, through this very tangible expression, that you are welcome at my table. You may deny me, but I will never deny my devotion to you. See, the gravity of Jesus' sacrifice is finally beginning to set in for Peter here. He re he's realizing that Jesus' death was not just some sort of arbitrary, you know, pointless death or some just, you know, heroic display of honor for his people. No, that Jesus went to the cross, was crucified, buried, and rose again so that people like you and me and Peter could be forgiven for the countless ways that we have rejected Jesus, whether in our hearts or through our words or through our actions, and so that we could be reconciled to God once again through repentance and faith. This is a vivid picture of how and why we repent as well. Turning from our sin and unbelief and returning to Jesus and not making a mild, cool, swagger stroll towards Jesus. Making a mad dash to the feet of our Savior. As we're going to see next week as we conclude this series, this is going to be an extremely healing moment for Peter. This is not just an invitation to come eat fish and eat bread. This is an invitation to the table to be restored, to be restored of his guilt, his shame, his fear, his apprehension, and to then be recommissioned and reaffirmed in his calling to make disciples. For us today, the work of the church is also to be fishers of men. Peter's call is our call. We are called to cast the net of the gospel, to urge people to come on board through faith in Jesus Christ. But this is important. Like Peter, we can't do this effectively. We cannot do this wholeheartedly until we've experienced our restoration in Jesus first. Before we go out for Jesus, we have to first come to dine with him, to be renewed and refreshed at his table, to be restored of all of our guilt and our shame and our sin. Today, for some of us, we've rejected Jesus in our hearts, through our conversations, and through our actions. Today, we need to make a mad dash back to him. He calls us to himself empty-handed. 
Cast off all restraint and return to Jesus and find your healing and find your forgiveness. For others of us, we need to be renewed in our trust in God's word. We need to be willing to live with daring faith in his instructions no matter what we see. To be like Peter, and I don't see Jesus yet, but this deep impulse to respond in obedience to his word in our lives. And some of us today need to be willing to come along. You're here today, and that is a huge move. For our guests that are just joining us today, we honor you. We honor you. And today I want to urge you to step out into the unknown and stake it all on Jesus by trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for your forgiveness in your life today as well. This is a timeless picture of the church today. May we faithfully reflect what Jesus has envisioned for us here in John 21. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you. For